This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, April 24th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. New Mexico has done away with qualified immunity for almost all public officials. How did they do it? New Mexico House Speaker Democrat Brian Egolf says it was a difficult lift, but one that is necessary to give New Mexicans the clear ability to get legal relief after their rights have been violated by public officials. We spoke earlier this week. New Mexico has an interesting distinction in that two libertarian wish list items New Mexico has done legislatively, and that was eliminating uh, civil asset forfeiture in the state and most recently eliminating qualified immunity for almost all public officials. And that's a distinction they're worth making. How did this come together? Well, I think uh, for these two uh, wish list items, uh, as you put it, they make good common sense to a lot of people. Uh, We in New Mexico are proud that we have a multicultural uh, state that we respect each other. We listen to each other. We want to make sure that we take care of one another. Along with that are some of the Western American values of uh, personal responsibility and accountability. And you see that come through in many, many things that we do here in New Mexico uh, with the elimination of civil asset forfeiture. I think we wanted to uh, get rid of a policy that was straight up unfair. You get pulled over, you are not convicted. Sometimes you're not even charged with a serious crime, but whatever personal property you had in your vehicle now belongs to the police. When you say that to uh, legislators, when you describe that circumstance, people don't really understand how that's possible. Yeah, they don't believe it. And then you have to keep explaining it. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. You know, when, when you, we have policy that is uh, just bananas, you have to explain it over and over again because you have to get over that hump of incredulity. And that is what led me to want to get into the fight to eliminate qualified immunity. So let's uh, let's think about what was the partisan breakdown here. You're the Speaker of the House. You carried this bill uh, yourself, which is itself a pretty big statement when you have a member of House leadership carrying a bill. And that pretty much says this is a priority of this body. Right. This is I've carried two bills uh, since I've become Speaker. Uh, That was a bit of a break. With New Mexico tradition, uh, often you know the Speaker of the House you know, would carry lots of bills, but I decided to go the opposite direction and really try to become someone who administered operations in the House. But there were two bills that I've sponsored or that I've carried since becoming Speaker. One was the bill to create the New Mexico Civil Rights Commission, whose work led to the introduction of the Civil Rights Act. And then the second bill would be the Civil Rights Act itself. Um, and I, when we were working to create the civil rights commission, I told a story going back to this idea of 
incredulity or just, you know, you can't believe that the law is what it is. Uh, my law partner uh, had a federal uh, civil rights case. Uh, she was representing a young boy who was the victim of repeat horrific sexual abuse uh, and sexual assault molestation at the hands of foster parents in New Mexico. And she went to federal court. The foster parents were deemed to be state actors, which is the legal term of art that you need to establish before you can proceed with a civil rights claim. Uh, but we, or she, my law partner, ended up losing the case because of qualified immunity, because there was not a Tenth Circuit decision that informed foster parents that committing sexual uh, assault and molesting a child deprives that child of rights guaranteed to the child by the U.S. Constitution. And I, you know, explained it to me over and over again, and I just could not believe that a young child suffering horrific abuse couldn't get justice in the courts because of qualified immunity. Uh, then I started to follow the work of Justin Amash in Congress and his work. And uh, that's that's what led to the Civil Rights Commission being created really in the immediate aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. You know, so there was another aspect of this work that was uh, you know, responsive to what was happening around the country and uh, what was happening uh, right here in New Mexico. What was the partisan breakdown of these votes and how supportive was the governor? Uh, it was, unfortunately, uh, not a bipartisan effort. Well, we worked hard to get Republican support for the bill. Uh, we did not get a single Republican vote uh, for uh, the New Mexico Civil Rights Act. Uh, it had very broad support among the Democratic Party, and the governor uh, was involved throughout the process. Uh, to you know, and was very, it was very supportive. He ultimately, signed the bill. Uh, we made many changes to the legislation as it went through the process, addressing concerns uh, about the scope and breadth of the bill. Uh, there were some technical changes. We wanted to hear concerns and criticism and then respond to that. So the bill as passed was substantially different than it was when it was introduced, but we maintained the core portions, which were abolishment of qualified immunity and a state cause of action to uh, vindicate rights secured by the New Mexico Bill of Rights. So uh, you mentioned something before we started recording, and I want to make sure that uh, you have a chance to reiterate it here, which is uh, qualified immunity as a doctrine uh, established by the U.S. Supreme Court is, in a sense, the height of judicial activism. And that is something that uh, conservatives, uh, many Republicans, claim to really hate about our judicial system. And yet here it is. Yeah, I mean, you, we hear, I would say, 99.9% .9 of the comment and criticism of uh, you know, so-called judicial activism or judge-created law, in my experience, comes from uh, Republicans, comes from conservatives. Here, with qualified immunity, you have a 
legal doctrine, what is essentially a law created out of whole cloth by the United States Supreme Court. It has never been passed or adopted by Congress. I don't believe has ever been passed or adopted by any state legislature. It is the height of judicial activism. It is the apex of judge-created law. Yet we couldn't find in New Mexico a single Republican to stand with us as we abolished a doctrine that does uh, injustice to so many people every year and blocks essential accountability for government officials that trample on the constitutional rights of Americans. It's uh, disappointing, but uh, despite the disappointment, uh, you know, we'll proceed and uh, everyone will be able to enjoy the benefits of the law, uh, Republican or Democrat, uh, just the same. The governor was supportive. You were unable to get Republican votes uh, on, on this bill. But what about interest groups that uh, have a stake in the outcome here? What was the response from, say, police or uh, other civil rights groups? Well, this bill brought together uh, literally the Koch family and the ACLU, so Americans for Prosperity and the uh, ACLU uh, were uh, on board in helping to get this bill passed. Uh, Cato did tremendous work uh, to help get this bill passed, uh, supplied excellent expert uh, insight and research data and was critical to passage. We had the whole spectrum of organizations. We had the Sierra Club, we had Planned Parenthood, we had the ACLU, we had Americans for Prosperity, we had uh, Cato. I mean, it was across the political spectrum. I'd never, I, I truly had never seen a coalition of organizations like the coalition that formed around the Civil Rights Act. And I think it's because people saw it as a tool to protect individuals, to make sure that individual liberty, whether it's liberty to enjoy the security and sanctity of your person, uh, the uh, liberty to enjoy a clean environment, to uh, have personal autonomy. You know, all of these interests uh, came together and provided a very powerful coalition. Uh, law enforcement was uh, almost uniformly opposed to the bill because of, I think, some misunderstandings and misinformation that's, that um, uh, led, uh, sort of led the conversation at the beginning. Uh, police officers were... Uh, basically misinformed about what the bill did and how it affects individual law enforcement officers and uh, local government. So county governments, city governments were not supportive for reasons of you know, what they said were you know, cost and uh, worries that they would lose their insurance policies if this bill were to become the law. Uh, so it was very important to have this broad coalition of outside organizations supporting the bill to counter what ordinarily would have been 
extremely influential uh, opposition from county governments. You know, the, the Association of Counties is a, is a very significant uh, player in the state legislature, as it, I'm sure is in other states. So we needed the we needed all the help we could get to uh, overcome the county's objections. So, what would your message be to lawmakers in let's just pick two states at random, Minnesota and Kentucky? The message would be explain the clearest example of of injustice that comes because of qualified immunity. Tell the story. The uh, the story that I told just a, mi- uh, a minute ago about my law partner's case. When when people hear those types of stories, uh, that their constituents, their fellow Kentuckians or Minnesotans, are denied justice in court because of qualified immunity, those stories need to be told to legislators. Those stories need to be told to policymakers. I then would say put a bill into the process with an understanding at the front end that you need all sides to speak and to be heard on this policy decision. And don't be afraid to make changes uh, to, to your bill. Don't be afraid to make changes to the policy to address legitimate concerns so long as you're maintaining the core of what you're uh, of what you're working toward. Uh, but you know, you know, the law enforcement is a powerful you know, voice in the conversation. It's important to acknowledge that this is not just about police officers. Uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that the vast, vast majority of police officers are good people who want to help their community. Uh, but every once in a while, and you know, well, I shouldn't even say every once in a while. I think, you know, too often, a small, a very small number of, you know, bad police officers commit horrific crimes, like the murder of George Floyd. And, but you don't want to paint all of law enforcement with a broad brush because it's it's not fair, it's not accurate. Uh, and so, listening to them, you know, making sure that their voice is part of the conversation is essential. Brian Egolf is the Democratic Speaker of the New Mexico House. We spoke earlier this week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.